Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the Mersey Waves podcast. I'm Michael Doran uh, from the communications team at Liverpool City Council. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking with uh, key individuals around the subject that is Liverpool's world heritage status. Delighted to have with me today, uh, Professor Ian Ray, who is the Vice Chair of World Heritage UK. Ian will today be talking in a personal capacity but has a huge amount of knowledge about World Heritage sites in our country. Also joining me is Peter Swift, co-founder of Planet, which is a landscape urban design consultancy firm. Uh, most notably, I've worked on what is known as Liverpool Waters, which is owned by the Peel Group. Also with me today is Councillor Sarah Doyle, the Cabinet Member for the Economy and Development Portfolio for Liverpool City Council, who's been appointed by the new Mayor of Liverpool, Joanne Anderson. I suppose for those listening to this podcast, we should start with the reason as to why we're doing this podcast. Um, and for those who don't know, Liverpool's World Heritage site is under threat of being deleted. If we can just do a very quick sort of history lesson, and we're talking about heritage, we do a very quick history lesson. Liverpool's World Heritage status was uh, granted in 2004. The whole issue of being uh, at risk of deletion uh, was triggered when the City Council approved a planning application, which is the biggest in the country at the time, and I think it still is, for Liverpool Waters, which basically covers the uh, huge swathe of Dockland uh, north of the city centre. Uh, Peter, I'm thinking you, you were with uh, Peel uh, when that planning uh, application was submitted to the city. Yeah, yeah. So we, we were. I wasn't part of the original, <coughs> original, original team, but came on board in 2011 and, and worked with City Council and, and Peel and Historic England and others to. Uh, yeah, to try and to try and set the planning in a more Liverpool context, given some of the things that were going on around yeah. about it as it was being developed. Because the um, again, for those who are not so uh, totally aware, the Liverpool Waters received planning consent in 2013 and was not what's called called in by the Secretary of State. So the approval uh, for development was given. And that concerns UNESCO, and that's what then triggers the process of being put at risk of deletion. It's safe to say, in that time since 2013, over the last eight years, um, there's been, is it, is it fair to say there's been missteps and misunderstandings on both sides of, the, of this debate in terms of why Liverpool ended up being on the at-risk register? I'll put that to you, Pete, first, and then if I'll, I'll open that up to Ian and Sarah as well. <clears throat> well, from, from my point of view, um, I think it's it, it's fair to say, you know, when I when I when I came on board, I didn't have any um, past knowledge of the process, if you like, and also as, as Ian will probably point out, the parties, you know. So I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not part of that world of uh, international heritage diplomacy and and communication so so trying to understand what the pathways are to communicate when you're you know working certainly in, in the private development world it is is incredibly difficult you've almost got to 
kind of you know go make it your business to learn to learn on the job kind of thing and, and then te- and then and then pass that on to everyone else so it wasn't just a case of of, of me or, or our team it was a case of then bringing the team the client the you know the the, the wider client group and team uh, uh, along with that journey so again a, a level of, of diplomacy and consensus building that had to be done if you like domestically before uh, before starting to do it internationally is it fair to say though that i mean I, i'm aware of conversations that i've had in the past that unesco had been spooked by liverpool waters because of what not what they'd heard but more visually what they'd seen I mean, it might be worth describing what is it that UNESCO saw. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think it. Without getting into into too much minutiae of, of how our planning process works, um, you know, we we all work. Those in the in the development industry work within a a plan led, you know, a plan led system. So whether that's national, local, you know, international, and and so in in a way, what what the first UNESCO response and, and monitoring mission saw were, um, in simple terms, kind of sand block, big box, kind of outlines of the maximum possible envelope of development that could ever possibly happen from one static viewpoint at the end of the process. And by that, what I mean, and I think for me, this is probably the most important point is they, they, they stood at, at Wallasey Town Hall with me and Ian and a, and, a, and a group of others with a set of flapping sheets of A3 paper showing what the future might look like in 30 years' time. And the problem was that that future had no windows, no detail, no narrative, no logic, no build-up. So, you know, the only solution could be that your jaw hits the deck, I think, um and so that that that's a really important thing where maybe that i like the term misstep that that we, we shouldn't have to tell an international organization about our planning process line by line but maybe we should have done and <laughs> um, because that point about maximum those those drawings weren't done to um sell the scheme or be part of some kind of uh promotional campaign they were done to inform an environmental impact assessment. So the piece of technical capacity building parameter presentation, they are totally and utterly, you know, not for the purpose of, I would say, wider narrative and explanation. They're there to perform a technical task that's an integral part of our planning process. Yeah, and I suppose in layman's terms, it was not grounded in commercial reality either. It was something that was seen as what the potential could be if everything clicked into place, which clearly... Yeah, I'd probably correct correct that a little bit. Um, you know, that if you think about other places in the world that have moved with ambition, in fact, the whole city of Liverpool has grown with ambition, is that there is, there, there is a, a need, if you like, at the at the inception point to enshrine that ambition and whether that's in the physical form whether that's in the whether that's in how you talk about it whether that's in monetary terms whether that's in 
you know, uh, social value, you know, all of those things, you know, are, are set out at that point. So, so in a way, what was presented there, you could argue from some camps, was the ultimate ambition. Commerciality, essentially, you know, when, when you come forward with, with really what is a market-driven thing, you know, if, if the city's global ambitions are such that they're no different from Hamburg, Copenhagen, those kind of places, then actually on, on many levels, some of that ambition, you know, could easily be realised. If you think about the stadium, for instance, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's writ large, you know, in, in that in that proposal, it's an incredibly ambitious proposal. But I think the point was that none of the narrative was conveyed. And the first conversation with UNESCO was, you know, almost kind of, we don't really understand what your vision is and where you've come from to get to where you've been. We've just seen the end and not and not the journey. Yeah. Ian, can I ask um, World Heritage UK for those? <laughs> Uh, who don't know that you exist? Uh, yeah. As a, um, you 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 are basically not so much the custodians, but you provide the network for all the world heritage sites in the UK. Be that Stonehenge, be that Liverpool, be that the newcomers like the Lake District. There are so many different types of world heritage sites. Is it when Liverpool was uh, put on the register to be at risk of deletion? What was the what was the reaction from World Heritage UK? Because this would have been, I imagine, the first time that anyone like in the UK would have been in that position, still is, I think, in that position. Well, um, World Heritage UK is a charitable body and it represents the interests of all the 30 odd uh, UK World Heritage sites, including sites overseas, um, in a few remaining colonial possessions, as well as Scotland. Wales and Northern Ireland. So we've got things in Scotland like the Fourth Bridge. Uh, we've got the Honkersilter Aqueduct in Wales, which I can never pronounce properly. And we've got the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. So let's let's not forget about the beyond the English dimension. Um, we were obviously very, very concerned about this because it would only be the third time in history that a World Heritage Site ever got deleted if things got that far. But there wasn't all that much we could do about it. I think going back to your earlier question, Mike, um, I absolutely agree. There have been missteps in this process. I mean, this saga has been going on since 2004 um, in, in one form or another. Uh, there have been three UNESCO missions and I've met them all and I watched how people behaved in front of those missions. And I think there are about six uh, missteps and you know this is the benefit of hindsight even even I would admit I, I made mistakes in this this process first of all the boundaries you've really got a question whether it was sensible to put a big derelict area that the city to redevelop into the world heritage site in the first place I mean you I can see the arguments for doing it at the time doesn't seem quite so wise now I think the city never fully embraced the world heritage site Peel uh, very dynamic, very effective uh, development group, but also very, very assertive and not over, over willing to negotiate. And unfortunately, UNESCO exactly the same. UNESCO visiting with a kind of preservationist outlook, not conservation, but keep everything as it was. Very rigid. And then finally, we've got our friends in the, the government, Her Majesty's government. 
who stood aside, really, in the whole process. And yet they are the people who are responsible for protecting our world heritage. They are the state party in UNESCO speak. And they are the people who signed the International uh, Convention on Protecting World Heritage. So unfortunately, quite a lot of things have gone wrong on quite a lot of, of sides. Uh, hopefully, we can get everybody to um, exercise a bit of humility. You're right, Peel, um, UNESCO were, were spooked by really what were artists' impressions of a fantasy uh, in some respects it was conceived before 2008 and of course it's never actually been built because um, the development economics have, have never stacked up so they're still worried about something that might happen but has never happened <laughs> and that's really why we're here today yeah I suppose if I can bring in you uh, Sarah the, the city council um, as Ian's alluded to with the role of government is although that the council is the as the planning authority has the control over uh, decisions to approve schemes like Liverpool Waters, um, we're very much a sort of in the back seat of the vehicle in terms of the negotiations around world heritage status. I think a lot of people, from my experience, looking from the inside, is that people don't truly appreciate the dynamics of that relationship. I mean you're very new to the city council so there's a a new broom so to speak of mayor joanne anderson i suppose my start of attempt to you is is that i don't know whether people hear this enough but how much is world heritage status how important is that to to this new administration hugely important and i mean one of the things that stands out for myself and for the new mayor and we are a completely new cabinet um is that we do believe that what we're doing meets unesco's emerging policy of social value social value and anyone that knows the new mayor and anyone that knows the political ambition of the new cabinet is that we're hugely focused on that social value as also being a benefit of a world heritage site. And for us, you know, our city, we feel and we want to build on it, already recognises and invests hugely in our heritage. And we want to make it a key driver of our continuing um, renaissance almost. Um, and, you know, urban world heritage sites like Liverpool, and, and I know the mayor feels like this and we as a cabinet feel like this. I know my um, colleague in uh, culture and tourism, Councillor Harry Doyle, we have discussed that these urban world heritage sites like Liverpool are a critical example of the challenges involving reconciling the voices of the past with the needs of tomorrow. Um, and our desire, our political desire as a new mayor and cabinet um, is to see the outstanding cultural heritage um, retained as a part of our city's future. But that has to be reconciled with the urgent need. And, you know, that we were we were thinking it was urgent before COVID hit. So it's even more pressing now. This urgent need for inward investment in a derelict part of the north of Liverpool, which has seen some of the greatest economic and social challenges within the whole of the UK. Um, and then, you know, this is the thing at the heart of the city's dilemma. And, and, I, and I think as we've been talking about missteps, 
maybe we as a council and our partners with public, private and community, maybe we haven't communicated strongly enough how committed we are to ensuring Liverpool's world heritage status. Um, but going back to what I think a part of this city's dilemma where we want to uphold and protect our heritage, but we also want it to be something that benefits local people. We want our heritage to sit in the hearts of communities, giving people a brighter future. Um, I know I've mentioned before that I actually sat on the planning committee that approved the application for Bramley Moor Dock. And one of the things that really stood out for me is that it was going to bring heritage into a community so it was accessible, so people could walk around from it, so people could learn from it. And I know that is something that's so important to me, that heritage is not behind closed gates that it's not inaccessible, it's something that people learn from and something that people can feel and that it's very much, you know, in the heart of our city rather than being separate from it. So that's the way we feel as a new administration. The um, I imagine a lot of people listening to this will probably not, will not get where UNESCO are coming from in terms of how can you put um, in this in Bramley Moor Dock, which we've referenced there, uh, which is in, which is has been derelict for the past 40 years, is sits within the poorest ward, not just in Liverpool but in the UK. And think if that's behind a wall, as Sarah has uh, quite rightly pointed out, to whose benefit is the outstanding universal, which is what UNESCO ascribed to a world heritage site, to whose benefit is a derelict dock? And I think. For the city, and I just want to ask a question I need to ask Sarah, as much as that we're under a new political administration, there's been a huge amount of activity over the last two years um, in the background, which UNESCO will have had no sight of. So where Pete's mentioned that, you know, what UNESCO have got their finger hovering over the button almost for the wrong reason, for, for want of a better description, if I just said in the last two years alone, Liverpool has done um, a local plan process, has done Bramley Moor Docks planning process, a huge amount of activity has gone on behind the scenes. Do you think? Do you think now is the time whereby we ask the committee members? Because I think people need to realise there's 21 committee members who sit and make the decision. This is just a recommendation to delete. They don't have to delete. Do you think we should be asking, I presume you're going to say yes, that they defer this decision and maybe explain why we why we will be asking them to defer this decision? Yes, wholeheartedly, yes. And for several different reasons. Um, you know, one of the things that ties up the whole of the world together over the past year or so is that we have been through an incredibly difficult time with COVID. Um, and I also want them to reflect on that and to reflect where we are now and the journey of us coming to this point and to say Liverpool, for the first time, has a coherent vision and plan for the whole of the North Shore. And this encompasses the World Heritage Site and the Liverpool North Shore vision. I think we believe is an international exemplar of heritage led regeneration and I know that's a term which maybe not many people are familiar with because they do see it at odds with each other but heritage led regeneration to deliver sensitive development alongside 
urban renaissance and economic prosperity. And I think we can bring all three of those things together. And, you know, and I want them, I would love if they could come to Liverpool. And I know that we've talked about if that is still something that can't happen, we will go the full way of whether that's um, a virtual way that they can see what we are doing for them to see the placement of where the North Shore is for them to recognise that it is in, it's located in one of the city's most challenging communities and to look that what we are doing um, is aiming to drive and guide the future growth of development in Liverpool and inspire the city region about what can be done if heritage and regeneration is done properly. Um, and, you know, the vision, and I hope that we can get this across to the committee members, the vision shows how the city is directly responding to the threat of the World Heritage Site status because of the redevelopment pro proposals along the North shoreline. Um, and we want them to see that it is mainly derelict and it is inaccessible to the public. And we want them to see that the vision which we are hoping to move towards will guide the existing development and future development. And it will bring up together heritage and urban development, not as conflicting objectives. I, I echo that when when Liverpool Water's consent was originally given and when the original master plan was um, drawn, for want of a better phrase, um, by others, it was, it was in a world where the historic urban landscape guidance didn't exist. So, so, so I, I would absolutely echo what, what Sarah said, which is, even if the city wasn't at the at-risk register, I would have advocated and the team would have advocated to Peel to look again at the plan through the lens of the historic urban landscapes guidance for that very reason. That as World Heritage UK had said to us in meetings, this should be in the book, not off the list. Can I, can I just um, reflect what uh, Sarah was saying and, and what um, Peter said about uh, Ron Van Ers, the late Ron Van Ers, who was a was a really great public servant and he really understood about the tensions between conservation and development. He would have loved that phrase which, which Sarah used when she said um, we've got to listen to the voices from the past but we've got to plan for the needs of tomorrow. I think that puts it all absolutely in a nutshell but Ron Van Ers came over for the first UNESCO mission and uh, I was involved in a discussion with him about the proposals for the new museum and the black Man Island buildings, uh, which which UNESCO were very concerned about, quite quite understandably, because they're pretty uncompromising bold buildings. Anyway, when, when I spoke to Ron before before we got into the discussion, I read him this 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 account, which was an absolute condemnation, a vilification of a particular building, which uh, the writer described as an, a revolting, ugly pile of bricks. And when I'd finished reading him this account, I said, you know what that account is about And uh, when it was written? And he said, no. And I said, well, it was Picton, who was Liverpool's historian in 1830, responding to the development proposals for the Albert Dock. Yeah. So people don't like change. It's, this is not a timid place. It's a place that can accommodate huge structures and buildings and has filled in docks in the past. The Liver building is built on the site of an infilled dock. Um, well, anyway, I think Ron got the message from me and, and they did agree to those, those buildings. 
just to build on that and I think um and, and I love you know the way that you've mentioned people previously may have saw that if if we can put our minds in the minds of people from that era and they're seeing all this construction and thinking god what's happening here and people sometimes can be skeptical of change um i was having a read about things and and ramsey muir and um, when he was talking about um saint george's hall and he was saying you know it's got innovative heating and a ventilation system And if you look at St. George's Hall and we look at that now and it's just something there that's across Lime Street and it's really grand. If you would have thought of people then seeing that being built, they may have thought that's going to make it more difficult to get from this side to that side. They may have been a bit sceptical of it. But Ramsey Muir identified that huge grand building and, and the things he identified in it, I think, is something that we can very much identify with today is a new a new administration in the in in the council and um, and what we're trying to do with our partners he said that saint george's hall symbolized and embodied the city's efforts to reposition and rehabilitate itself after the abolition of the infamous slave trade it was the first in the series of rebranding and place making exercises to be undertaken by liverpool to improve its image and identity now that hall St George's Hall it's on you know it's an iconic symbol of Liverpool as is the Albert Dock but it was seen originally as a series of rebranding and placemaking exercises for Liverpool to improve its image and identity and I think we're there you know we're on that precipice now Um, and I think that's just lessons that we should reflect on. I was going to say when we came in at the beginning we were talking about a very quick timeline and where you talked about the library building obviously the Cunard and the Port of Liverpool those three graces, which is sort of like the poster buildings of the World Heritage Site, yeah. uh, it's on George's dock. And I know when we were doing the North Shore Vision last year, I know a lot about Liverpool's history. I didn't realise how many docks had actually already been infilled. The planning document that guides it has a note in there about the infill of docks. And it says under no no you know, reason, there's no reason for the infilling of docks except for exceptional circumstances. Um, Do you think Everton Football Club's application to build a, well, a world-class sports stadium fits that exceptional circumstance uh, definition? I'll put that to you, Ian, first, because it'd be a bit unfair to go to Pete, given his role in in the process. But Given to somebody who knows a lot about world heritage sites, not just in the UK, but I'm sure you've studied them all over the world. Do you think that the football stadium fits that measure of it's an exceptional circumstance? Well, I'm going to dodge that question, Mike, um, because you have raised an important point that the city did approve a document to control development in the world heritage site. And there was a policy which really... Um, suggested pretty strongly that we should not be losing the water areas. And I think that was a reasonably sound policy. I was quite content with that policy when it was approved. But the way the British planning system works, one of its glories is that it's flexible so that it thinks about all the possible consequences of a new development, both the losses and the gains. And if you look across the World Heritage Site as a whole, Basically, you can only point to two central problems. One of them is the loss of a small area of water in that dock in order to build that stadium. Yeah, which is a, which is a minor loss. We all like looking at water. But you have to balance that 
against the gains of that development. The other problem, of course, is the tall buildings in the Liverpool Waters application, which have in fact never been built. So that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is the huge progress that's been made absolutely everywhere else in the World Heritage Site. A list of projects, which is almost endless and is still continuing. So if you've got to look at the balance sheet as a whole when you're looking at where the World Heritage Site is going, that small area of water, and you think, well, just how important is that? really in the in the overall uh, statement of outstanding universal value for me and i know for my friend rob burns the biggest miss in the definition of the city's outstanding universal value was that this city is the home of the skyscraper if anybody wants to claim that badge like being the badge of the best football city in the world this city invented the technology that enabled skyscrapers to be built in north america and the Far East. End of story. That is one of the key constituent elements of Liverpool's outstanding universal value. The other point being that when World Heritage was granted in 2004, the city's skyline on the waterfront was already defined by modern tall buildings alongside historic ones. So what changed? And the answer is quite simple, which was The tools used to engage, to have a dialogue about the future, were probably not fit for purpose in hindsight. But we've got those tools today. We've got the guidance. What Sarah has eloquently said is we've got a leadership that wants to have constructive, collaborative dialogue. Why on earth would you walk away from that? Yeah, just just picking up Pete's point about... uh, skyscrapers and tall buildings skyscrapers tall buildings and big buildings in city centers are entirely compatible with the highest standards of conservation heritage conservation if you go down to the tower of london which is a world heritage site open your eyes and look around you and you will see it is absolutely surrounded not with planning proposals for tall buildings built but with incredibly tall buildings which have been built. Many of them are of very high quality, not all of them, I don't think. But there's, there's in, a, in an urban context, it's quite possible to have um, historic heritage sitting comfortably. In, in fact, it, it's not maybe comfortable is the wrong word, sitting in an exciting way with an exciting contrast with new development. There's no problem with that at all. And, 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 and Mike, just to go back to when you said, you know, about exceptional circumstances, Um, When I bring my mind back to when I was on the planning committee, the loss of the part of the water space, uh, and I know we've mentioned this, is characterised in the Everton submission as being consistent with the well-documented Liverpool tradition of repurposing Liverpool docks. Um, And, you know, we do recognise UNESCO's concerns, but we also want to, you know, pull their attention to exceptional circumstances. And for instance, if you combine these transform transformational projects, if delivered in their entire entirety, will provide you know around 800 million worth of direct stadium investments, um, 8,500 construction jobs, 900 new job opportunities on completion. Together, all of that will deliver two billion of economic benefit to the Liverpool city region economy in one of the most socially and economically challenged 
established areas of the city and the country. If that isn't exceptional, and, and bear in mind, all of that would have been done in line with the, the guidance from UNESCO and, and drawing upon their social value um, policies. If that isn't exceptional, then, you know, I don't know what is. I suppose also we should be fair to say that Everton aren't just looking to build a, a sports football stadium. They've put their money where their mouth is and they're pledging £50 million on improving the historic assets within the dock, whether it's the pump house or the clock to create a heritage visitor centre. I mean, I suppose you can make, I presume that was in your thinking when you approved the plan application. Yeah, no, definitely. And and there's those sort that there's those attentions to detail that we know that Everton are on the same um, vision with us and the same path with us because they are putting those things in place where they're saying this is going to be community focused but it's also going to be making sure we retain the or we uplift not even retain it I, I don't think heritage is about having something and putting it on a shelf it's about uplifting it and um, I think that's the best form of protection and you can see that they are that they are doing that. Can I end with this question? Um, and thanks very much for your time today. I know you're very busy, all three of you. If the, Heritage, the World Heritage Committee uh, don't accept this invitation to defer and come visit Liverpool and see what's been achieved just in those last two years, how much of a loss to Liverpool and would it just be a loss to Liverpool if World Heritage status was taken away. I'll start with you, Ian, and then I'll, I'll go round to Peter and then Sarah. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a blow to the city's pride. The people, when we got this designation, uh, people were extremely proud about this. Councillors were extremely proud about this because it, it was a hallmark showing Liverpool's world significance. So, yes, it will be a loss. It might not be an economic loss, but it will be a loss to the city's pride and reputation. But I think the way to react to that uh, decision, if it comes, is to say, well, OK, you may have taken us off the list, but all the assets are still there. Nothing's changed. All the assets for which the site was designated are still here. So we need to find a new way of using our own pla planning legislation and our own planning frameworks, including the spatial plan that the uh, city region mayor is draw, drawing up to provide very effective protection, management and interpretation in the future. Now, there's nothing to stop us continuing to call ourselves Liverpool World Heritage City, even if we're not a World Heritage Site. And to you, Sarah, what, um, I suppose you would probably feel, considering that you're extremely new, I had some guests, but you clearly think that this was unfair. Or how do you think that, do you think the city's got enough I don't know, appetite, desire, will. If we lost World Heritage status, as much as, the, as Ian's quite rightly pointed out, the buildings would be there the very next day. They would not disappear. But <laughs> would, would the commitment to heritage-led development, would it be weakened, would it be diluted if we lost this World Heritage status? No, definitely not. I think it would. It, I think it would spur us on because we would be. We would still be looking to the future and looking and saying, you know, come to Liverpool, come and see the hydraulic engine house that will be in the Bramley Moor dock, which could be completely lost without short-term investment. And now come and see it and learn from it and look at it. And we would be saying to UNESCO you know, our purpose, even if they did decide to take us off the register, 
Um, our purpose is to engage with World Heritage to continue doing that. And we do firmly believe that Liverpool deserves a place at this elite table of heritage. And we will continue to demonstrate that Liverpool deeply cares about our heritage and that we will have plans, you know, the local plan that's been referenced in the spatial framework, that we have our plans and we have our processes to sustain it, to underline it. And it will be a key part of the foundation of our city's future success. Um, and, and we will also show, regardless of what happens, that the way we view regeneration is that it can bring substantial investment for social, economic, cultural, physical, hist historic environment in the city. Um, and I know that we know that heritage will play a continuing role in the growth and prosperity of the city. Um, and that's something that our st we will continue to work with our stakeholders on and we will carry that forward no matter what. Pete, I suppose if the committee members, I'll flip it so the decision has been deferred and they accept the invitation to Liverpool, but they can't come for whatever reason, be it whether COVID's still an issue. I suppose whereby you refer to that instance of showing them pieces of A3 paper and standing by Wallasey Town or looking across the Mersey, technology has moved on to a point where that misstep, you know, which is probably unfair because that was what you had at hand at the time, but technology probably is never been in a better position to show the committee members what's been achieved without them even to having to leave their own home, I would presume. Well, the city at the moment is a great crucible, as it always has been, for innovation. So the university are doing incredible work in St George's Hall alongside NML and others about using you know, real cutting edge technology, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality to, to be able to, you know, uh, explain and share the assets. So, again, one of the things that the, the whole guidance sets out is that idea of ancient and modern, you know, real, real cutting edge technology working hand in glove with old school, you know, Pevsner guides and, and guided walks and all the rest of it, that in a way the world we all live in needs both. It's not a point that technology is a substitute when you can't get face to face. The point surely is that those two things sit hand in glove with each other. You know, Everton's technology, technological advancements for protecting the dot wall and, and essentially creating reversibility in theoretical terms in the proposal. What an amazing story to, to sell. What an amazing story to put online, show a model, put in a museum, have a tour around. You know, UNESCO's primary mission is to educate. And so the need to educate is, is absolutely fundamental at the heart of everything everybody has said this morning. The reason for this podcast is to educate. It's not to stand on the back foot and be defensive. It is genuinely to educate. And I would just finish on one point that, that Mike, you've just raised. Look, let, we talked about, about legalese and about moratoriums in the city. We have a contract with UNESCO, but a contract involves offer and acceptance. And so if they don't accept our invitation, I would argue then they are in breach of contract, not Liverpool. Do, um, if we end on this, I'll, uh, if I ask all three of you, are, are you hopeful? Well, um, I'm, I think there's, there's a slim chance. There is a chance. So it's worth going for it. There's a slim chance of uh, having the deferral and retaining the site. 
But even if we don't retain the site, I think there's a very, very strong chance that we will win the popular case and people will see that Liverpool has managed its World Heritage Site very responsibly and 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 achieve the right balance between social objectives, economic objectives and, and heritage objectives in the round. Yeah, and I think what Sarah said is absolutely the, 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 the key point for me, which is the city has asked for a deferment in the past because they haven't done anything. The city have asked for a deferment now because they've done a lot and it needs to be considered. And are you hopeful, Sarah? Um, I am I am hopeful and I don't know if that's just because I'm an optimist or as we were talking about before, since becoming a councillor in 2019, there's just been a wave of things one after another. And I think it's our hope that drives us forward and keeps us doing good things. Um, so I am. And I also think I will have, as I think the mayor will and the cabinet and our officers and the council, I think we will have peace of mind because we will know that we have done everything we can. So that's where my hope comes from. I think that's a good place to end. Thanks very much for your time, uh, Professor Ian Ray. World Heritage UK, Peter Swift, Planet um, co-founder and last but not least councillor Sarah Doyle, cabinet member for economy and, and development. Thanks very much to you all. Thank you. Thank you.